and must make the most of our limited time here. Each of us have these unique gifts to contribute to the world. And it's our job to develop these gifts and give them away. That's why I created the Preschool SLP podcast. The Preschool SLP is about working smarter to create real change in ourselves and in others. Being an SLP is a mission. Let's discuss topics that matter. What are the game-changing strategies? How can we treat the whole child? How can we create the shiniest versions of ourselves and of our clients? We're here at the drawing board for a reason. You bring your own unique gifts. Together, let's create better. So happy Thanksgiving. If you are here on Thanksgiving Day, what can I say? You are incredible. You are so passionate about this field. You really see it as more than a profession. It is a mission for you. And I admire you for that. The children you work with and the staff you work with are so fortunate to have you. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I've met people that buy my speech sound disorders book and that listen to this podcast and that are in the CIS membership and they're not your average Jill or your average show. They are very serious about this work, very motivated to give a hundred percent to the children that they serve. And this is just one more of those situations. If you're listening to this podcast today, what can I say? The proofs and the pudding. This work matters to you because you know that you're an agent of change, because you know that you're changing all of these lives and giving these children total different realities because of the work that you're doing today. So I am honored to be in your presence and thank you so much for joining me. It really means a lot. Today is going to talk about something that I'm very passionate about that has kept me at the drawing board every day for years. I've lost sleep over this. This is something I obsess over. It's speech development for children with autism. I'm going to tell you what I did 20 years ago, which is the opposite of what you should do if you want to encourage speech development. In fact, what I was doing 20 years ago discourages speech development. I'm going to talk about why. And then I'm going to share five tips that I've developed over the last 20 years that I've researched and that I feel tested that really work in developing speech for children with autism. Okay, let's get going. 20 years ago, what not to do? I would say nothing is free. And I would encourage teachers and parents and in my own therapy, I would withhold items and objects until the child requested them. Now, of course, this is with children who could talk. 
right? And of course, I was using augmentative communication since day one. I wasn't that horrible. So I always immediately would start with augmentative communication, but I would say if they could talk, nothing is free. So I would tell teachers, for instance, don't give them the cookies unless he asks for it and tell parents that. Now, what happened as a result of that for children with autism spectrum disorder? What we know about them currently is that there's damage to the area of the brain and the cerebellum that's responsible for consistency and complex motor movements. So it's kind of like childhood apraxia speech. Sometimes things come out perfectly and sometimes things come out as jargon. So in the same manner, children with autism, sometimes they're able to speak and sometimes they're not able to produce speech. It's that inconsistency. And unfortunately, over the years, many people have labeled these children who have neurological difference as being lazy or being stubborn, where in fact, they really are unable at times to produce speech. So what would happen is I would induce what is known as an approach avoidance conflict. And that is I would have something that the child really wants. So the child really wants to talk, but then at the same time, the child has a history of realizing that sometimes they can talk and sometimes they can't. So I've made speech even higher stakes. So there's a high reward and there's a high risk. And that's where avoidance comes in. So they want to approach it because they want the reward really, really badly. But then they avoid it because they also know that odds are they're not going to be able to produce speech. So you've heard about this approach avoidance paradigm with people who stutter. So they might really, really want to talk. Or maybe they want to ask a girl out, right? The stakes are very, very high. The risk is very, very high that when they do talk, the stutter will emerge. So then they avoid talking as a result. So there's that approach, that desire, and then there's that avoidance, that avoidance of not being able to control your speech. And so I see that same paradigm in children with autism. And what happens is we're withholding when we do these activities, even if it's a fun activity, such as the blanket swing, ready, set, go, I'm going to wait for you to say go. Or if it's treats or juice or minimum or cookies, we're withholding food or we're withholding attention or we're withholding engagement. And what happens when these basic human needs are withheld? What happens is we go into a fight, flight, or freeze mode because the amygdala is stimulated. The way our brain works is kind of like a light switch. You either go to the higher level prefrontal lobe cerebellum thinking, or you go to the amygdala brainstem thinking. You can't have both of these thoughts. So for instance, when someone has a bittersweet thought in which they're happy and at the same time they're sad at the loss of something, the neurological research shows the brain goes like a light switch. So it'll go higher level thinking, low level thinking, higher level thinking, low level thinking, and it just flickers back and forth. So we take this child out of the prefrontal cortex, out of the cerebellum, in which generate highly complex motor behaviors such as speech. 
We flip that switch off and we flip them into the amygdala. When we withhold food, withhold attention, withhold engagement, how do they respond? They can do a flight and that means they're under the table. They're literally running away from you. They can use, which often means they turn you off. They look up to the lights. They look to their fingers instead, right? Or they can do a fight. And that's where you are maybe losing some hair. Or you are being bitten or you are lunging at you. So that reaction has occurred as a consequence of our behavior, which is to withhold basic necessities of attention, engagement, or food. So we have done the opposite neurologically of what we want to do. We want these children operating in the cerebellum, the higher level areas of the brain, to the prefrontal cortex to produce speech. But we turn that switch off by putting them into a remote by withholding engagement, attention, or food or drink. We want to do the opposite of that. I'm going to share with you five tips right now. And these five tips are about how can we stimulate the prefrontal cortex and the cerebellum? Because what we know from the latest neuroscience is that children with autism have a diffuse damage around the cerebellum. And we have some difficulty in the communication between the cerebellum and neuronal tracts to the prefrontal lobe neurons fire together and wire together. We want to activate the cerebellum and the prefrontal cortex as much as possible early on. In doing so, we're going to make speech more automatic because speech is this highly complex motor activity that involves the prefrontal cortex and the cerebellum working in conjunct with one another. So let's get into these five tips that really, really work. Now, these are tips that I've researched myself and I feel tested in my own practice and other researchers have researched them as well. Number one, movement. I've done the research where I've looked at children doing the same activity seated at a table or engaged in a And in the same child, we found more speech, more pleasurable vocalizations when children are moving. Now, some of the reasons for that could be, one, you have increased oxygenation to the brain. Another reason could be entrainment, because what we find is the body is very connected to the mouth. So for instance, if you think bye-bye, you're going to see that the mouth movement is doing the same thing the hand does. If I'm saying hello, you're going to see the mouth movement is doing the same thing that the hand is doing. If I say come here, once again, you're going to see the mouth and the hand doing the same thing. So there's that natural process of entrainment in which the mouth and the limb movements move with one another. So if you want to generate more vocalizations in the mouth, you're going to want to get that body moving. Second area that really works is literacy. Many of my children did not learn to talk by hearing the words. They learned to talk by reading the words, by seeing them. And that's because a lot of the research indicates that the visual cortex in children with autism spectrum disorder is largely spared. There is not neurological difference in that area. We want to capitalize on their visual strengths by showing them language and sharing language through them through print. 
if you want to encourage speech, put everything in print. So my Sparkle in School membership, I've taken things up a level this year in which I have something called stickers in which not only is the child going to receive the object, such as an elephant, they're going to receive a sticker with the word written big cocoa puff print that says elephant. And what's happening as a result is it's one thing when I say the word elephant and present it to the child. It's another thing when the child gets to carry that word with them. So the, the word just doesn't blow by the breeze with a child that has poor auditory processing skills. When the child in good time, maybe two, maybe three minutes later in the obstacle course, looks down, they say elephant. And it could be at that moment that they're auditorily processing my, me saying the word elephant three minutes ago. So it's a way to take that speech and instead of have it breeze past their ears, they're able to carry it with them and process them when it's time for them to process them. Because what we know from the research is that children with autism spectrum disorder have excellent, tend to have excellent visual processing skills, but poor auditory processing skills. So there's a mismatch. It's kind of like if you're watching a movie on fast forward and the audio is on slow motion. When you give them the print, you're giving them the word, and that's how many of them will develop speech. Let's move to the third strategy. The third strategy is multimodal cueing. So with multimodal cueing, use the fingers and use your arms when you're producing words and sounds and to use charades. What we know is that when they're cutting, they open and close the mouth with their scissors. When they're balancing, not only do they hold their hands out to the side, the tongue goes out as well to balance. When they're drawing, a lot of times you're going to see that tongue move along with their fingers. So what's going to happen when we do multimodal cueing in which we're showing the sounds and acting the sounds out with our fingers and with our arms and our limbs and making it really big is a couple of things. One, entrainment in which the tongue is moving with the fingers and the limbs. And secondly, it allows the child to see how the sound is produced, see where the sound is produced as well. It also shows them the how the sound is produced. Is it in a stop motion? Is it continuous, the airflow? Is there some friction in the airflow? So we can show that with big gestures and multimodal cueing. I always say, pretend that the child with autism is in row ZZ, the nosebleed section, and you're in a Shakespearean actor with no microphone. You're going to want to move loud and you're going to want to speak loud. Well, some children have sensitivity, not with them, but you're really going to want to make speech salient. Okay. You're going to do it more slowly as well. So let's look at the fourth strategy for helping with speech development, and that is music. And so with music, I turn everything into a song. I do believe you don't want to give a direction to a child multiple times because then you tell the child 10 times to do something as the ABA or BCBA therapist would tell you, you're teaching them that 90% of the time you ignore this person and then the final time you respond to their direction. 
So I do believe we have to be very cognizant of having a one-to-one -one back and forth interaction in which I give a direction or I ask out a question and respect, expect a response. Now, when it comes to following directions, what I like to do is sing a song. So if I want the child to go back to the red chair, I would put it in a tune. So I might say, for instance, red chair, red chair, red chair, red chair. Come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. Go into the red chair. Go into the red chair. Walk, 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 walk. Well, so I may be repeating myself, but that's the refrain of the song. And it's giving the child enough gestures, enough communication, enough auditory support altogether to comprehend the direction. So singing has been really, really wonderful. And what I find is that the children begin singing the song with me. So singing is very powerful. There's a lot of research to show its efficacy in working with children with autism. So the next one we're going to look at is dopamine levels. So dopamine levels are levels that when you're happy, your dopamine levels go up. So for instance, you probably remember every detail about your wedding or every detail when it came to having your child. And that's because there were very, very happy moments in your life. So what is going to happen with these dopamine levels going up? That means that the child is going to learn more quickly and the child's going to remember what they learned. In addition to that, it's if you have a goal, your dopamine levels go up. So for instance, the dopamine levels go up when we work for a goal. So if you've ever run a marathon, like I ran a marathon before, you're so happy and then you run the marathon and there's kind of a letdown after your goals are accomplished. It's like, the dopamine levels just crash. So what happens is when we're working toward a goal, the dopamine levels go up. And that's why task-oriented movement activities are so powerful. A lot of people are like, I use movement in my therapy, but it's basic one-step cause-effect movement. So they have the child bouncing on a ball, or they have the child swinging on a swing. Even worse, if they're bouncing the child or swinging the child, then they're doing the child's push-ups for them. That's not what I talk about. That's not at all what I'm talking about when I mean putting movement into therapy. I mean putting task-oriented movement activities into therapy. And the big difference is as task-oriented movement activities, you have a goal to accomplish. So in the task-oriented movement activities, you have a problem, you have a plan, you have action, and you check it, you take it to completion. And this improves executive function. So you're really stimulating the cerebellum and the prefrontal cortex in creating those tracks that we know that we have disturbed disturbances in with children with autism spectrum disorder. Remember, neurons that fire together are going to wire together. So what we're going to do is use task-oriented movement activities that increase the dopamine levels so that learning is going to occur more quickly and the children are going to remember what they've learned. But not only that, we're also going to have a problem that they identify, a plan that they make, action and a check to completion, which is very big in executive function. When you go into these movement activities, task-oriented movement activities as well, not just movement activities. I'm not talking about bouncing on a ball. No, no, no. I sound like such a snob, but I, I kind of do feel a little bit snobby because I think that's 
one goal that attaches one goal. You're, you're meeting ch children's sensory needs, which is an important goal, but we can do much more than that with the time we have, okay? With the task-oriented movement activities, because there are multiple steps, aside from our complex treatment targets that I advocate, what happens is you improve attention. So when you improve attention, then you're going to have more activity in the cerebellum and the prefrontal lobe as well. You're rewiring the brain. I think in the work that I've done, I can't tell you enough about the importance of increasing children's attention. When you increase their attention, be it through multi, multiple step activities, be it from longer, more complex treatment targets, be it from longer back and forth engagement within activities, what's going to happen is it's going to result and improve it. What's going to happen is it's going to result in improvement in every aspect of that child with autism's life. You're going to see improvement in communication skills. You're going to see improvement in behavior. You're going to see improvement in independent functioning. You're going to see improvement in play skills. You're going to see improvement in motor skills. You're going to see a decrease in sensory dysregulation. You're going to see an increasement in improvement in cognitive skills. So all areas of this child's life, you're going to see improvement in when you have improvement in attention. So that's another area that task-oriented movement activities really improves is attention, working memory, and cognitive flexibility. So those three aspects of executive function. So you have attention in that they're going through a multiple step task all by themselves and accomplishing a goal. You have an increase in working memory and that they're remembering multiple steps in the action to, to take something from a problem to a plan, to an action, to checking into checklist. So those are the five tips that I've learned over the years that I think are absolutely invaluable to helping children with autism develop speech. Now, I'll tell you my statistics. In the past 20 years ago, when I was at the children man, nothing is free. I would say a third of my children did not develop speech. With these new techniques that I'm doing today, that number is about half that. I would say about 15%. So if I have a class of seven children who have a severe level of impairment in a self-contained classroom, one of those children are not going to develop speech. And yet, I'm at the drawing board every single day. I'm reworking things every single day. I'm not giving up because I know that there's going to be a time where all of these children are going to develop speech because we're going to work smarter. We're not going to do methods in the past and have children switch into their amygdala brain in which they're unable to talk. And instead, we're going to work at a, a way in which we're going to say, how can we stimulate that cerebellum to prefrontal cortex? And how can we stimulate the tongue and mouth movement? And what more? And how can we capitalize on these amazing visual processing skills to develop speech? We're going to become smarter. We're going to do better for these by these children. So we're going to become smarter. We're going to do better by these children. And we're going to make a bigger impact. So thank you so much for joining me. If you join me on Thanksgiving, email me at kelly at kellyvest.com so I can wish you a happy Thanksgiving. 
I want you to take all of this information, roll up your sleeves and make the world a better place, one child at a time. And you are first. 